When I was growing up in Colorado, um, I was part of the Boy Scouts when I was in elementary and in middle school. And one year and one of the summers in Colorado, I got to go to a week-long Boy Scouts camp. I think I was 10 years old. I was so excited. I got to go on a week-long Boy Scouts camp. As a part of my family unit, my responsibility and one of my jobs to take care of, as a part of my family, was to take care of our pet cat. I had this really cute little cat. I got him when I was, I think I was like seven or eight. I love this cat so much. It's an amazing cat. Where I grew up in Colorado was right next to some open space lands. And that open space land was there so that it would preserve um, Colorado birds of prey. In Colorado, there's these amazing birds that live on the front range. These owls and these uh, hawks and eagles are incredible. So they have these large open space areas so that they can live and they can thrive without any kind of human interaction in those spaces. And as a part of my job to take care of my cat, Every night, it was an outdoor indoor cat. So every job, it was, every night it was my job to bring the cat back inside when I was 10 years old. That was my job. To always go find the cat, you have to run around the house a couple of times, but eventually you find the cat and bring the cat inside. For obvious reasons when you live next to open space. And on that week away when I went to Boy Scout camp, I had to give that job over to somebody else in my household. I think it was my older brother, maybe my dad. I can't quite remember, but maybe my communication wasn't so good. But anyways, I said, you have to remember to feed, give water, but then also to bring the cat inside at the end of the night. And so sadly, when I came home from the Boy Scout camping trip at the end of that great week, my cat wasn't there. My brother forgot to bring the cat in one night. And of course, when you live in an, next to an open space with birds of prey, that cat just never came back. It was so heartbreaking. It was so heartbreaking being a 10-year-old and losing your beloved pet, a domesticated animal, someone you snuggled with and somebody you loved, right? I'm sure you have an experience like that too, where maybe you have loved a pet, a cat, a dog, and you've lost that cat or dog, and it's been so heartbreaking for you. I'm sure you have an experience like that. And in fact, when we share stories about the pets, the domesticated animals we love, um, and when we lose them, I think we can feel a deep sense of empathy with one another at the result of the loss that we experience like that in life. I can tell because I've looked at Nextdoor sometimes, and I don't know if you ever look at Nextdoor, that social media, but every once in a while somebody will tell a story about, oh, I lost my cat and it never came back, and you'll see hundreds of comments about how sad people are for them, how much empathy and love they have for those people. But then in the same token, they might say that something else that has to do with their own self and maybe nobody says anything or nobody feels any empathy, but we feel this deep sense of empathy, I think, between one another when people have the experience of losing a loved pet, a loved domesticated animal, right? I'm sure you know what that's like to lose that kind of that love that you might have between a pet, and you've experienced empathy when somebody else has lost a pet like that too. In a moment, you're going to hear a story from 2 Samuel about a domesticated animal and a pet and the loss of that pet and what that is like. Maybe pet is not quite the right word for the story, but a domesticated animal, the love between the caretaker and the one being taken care of in this story 
And it's a really powerful story between Nathan and David. But I want to set the stage a little bit because we're looking at the whole of First and Second Samuel today. So I have to provide some context for what you're about to hear or else it may feel totally out of the left field. First and Second Samuel is about the transition for the people of God from one form of government to a new form of government. You heard previously that the people of God now dwell in the land of Israel and in Judah. And for a period of time, they had judges that were set up in these different regional locations so that they might administer the law that was given to them when they were in the wilderness. That these judges would function as intermediaries between people when they had disputes about did somebody follow the Ten Commandments or not? Did somebody do this or not? And all the different laws that they had to do. So they were kind of under disassociated county governments for a long period of time, and these judges ruled over those areas. And then, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, the people of God cry out. They peop- the people cry out to God, and they say, we want a king. We want a monarch. We want a king, God. We want to be like the other nations around us that have kings. We see their power. We see their nations growing and expanding, and we want to have a king, too. The prophet Samuel, though, speaking on behalf of God, warns them and says, if you have a king, be careful. Yes, you may become more powerful, but it may come at the expense and the exploitation of you, your families, your labor, and your resources, right? For a nation to become more powerful through a king, it may mean that you need to give up what you have to make the whole of the nation more powerful. And so God warns the people through Samuel. And, but the people still get what they want. They agree sort of to these terms loosely in 1 Samuel. They say, yes, that's fine. We still want a king. We want to be powerful like all the other nations around us. And so they get their first king, Saul. And it doesn't go so well. And the second half of 1 Samuel then is about the rise of David. Somebody who, if you've read any parts of the biblical text, you've heard probably about David mostly from First and Second Samuel. Also, David was thought to have authored parts of the Psalms. And then also in the New Testament, there's so much reflection on who David is in the biblical text too and in the New Testament passages that we have. And so David's a really central character. David rises up to power alongside Saul. God rejects Saul from kingship. And then David becomes the second king and is king of the unified kingdom, Israel and Judah together combined. And for a period of time, everything is going really well for David and for the people. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant that was lost to the Philistines in the beginning parts of 2 Samuel, David goes out and conquers the Philistines, rescues the Ark of the Covenant, brings it into Jerusalem, and he's dancing around the Ark of the Covenant, and everybody's having a great time. Everything seems to be going so well with the monarchy until we get to these passages in 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12, which I'll read for us in just a moment. And the essential part of what ends up happening is that while David is in his palace, he sees a woman named Bathsheba who's on top of a building and she looks beautiful to him. And he goes and ends up having an inappropriate relationship with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. And instead of of uncovering what it was that happened between David and Bathsheba, David sends Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, off to battle to hide what took place from Uriah. And not just sends him out to battle, but puts him at the very front lines of his wars. 
and Uriah ends up dying in second chapter 11. Now, all of this is grievous. This is, this is heinous in the eyes of God. And so you'll see now in this encounter in second Samuel chapter 12, Nathan, the prophet who replaces Samuel, goes to see David to tell David what the Lord has to say to him about what has transpired now. So if you have Bibles in front of you, or if you have a phone and you want to look at it that way, you can also just follow along on the screen in front of you. We're going to be reading 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. Listen to the word of the Lord. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man, which had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, he brought it up, and it grew up with him, and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, a wayfarer, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him, but instead he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house for you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, now the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is the gift of God's word. Thanks be to God. Join me in a word of prayer. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts
be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I was growing up, I had a friend who had this pool that was elevated above the ground. I don't know if you've ever seen those pools. Maybe they're three feet or four feet high, and it was filled with water. And when you had a group of people inside of the pool, we liked to do this game where if you got everybody in a circle in the pool and you got them to run as fast as they possibly could run, all of that acceleration and mass would start to push the water around the pool into a big circle. And all of a sudden, after a little bit of running, it would create this whirlpool effect within that pool. You could throw flotation devices into the middle of the pool and it, came, it became like a little lazy river where you could float on those flotation devices and not have to do anything more once you started to push the waters around into the pool. This is a really heavy story that you just heard in 2 Samuel 12. And I think partly the reason why is that a whirlpool has begun to take place as a result of David's leadership in this new shifting political reality in 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12 with David's kingship. Partly why David has sinned and has erred and why we can experience the incredible tension of this story and of this text is that uh, there's a literary device that takes place in these stories where God, who is Lord, is the one who sends people to go do things. In the text, when you look through 2 Samuel, you often hear about the Lord sending someone to do something, the Lord sending them here or sending them there. But then all of a sudden in 2 Samuel 11, David starts to send people. David starts to send people to go get Bathsheba. David sends Uriah the Hittite off to war. David sends a messenger to go see what happens to Uriah the Hittite. All of a sudden, it starts to feel like in Judah and in Israel, David is beginning to take the place of God's rulership and leadership over the people in that place. And all of a sudden, it's become this big whirlpool and all the forces and the political power that's taking place in 2 Samuel 12 is this new thing that's happening, and people are just along for the ride for what David is doing now. David is no longer the happy king that's dancing with the Ark of the Covenant. Instead, David has begun to supplant God's place in the life of the people there by becoming the one who is sending people out to go do things and is no longer one who is sent by God. So then God sends Nathan, to, the, to David, to tell him this story, to tell him this parable. And it feels, frankly, like a brick wall in the midst of all the movement of that whirlpool, doesn't it, when you hear this story? It feels like a brick wall, not just for us, because it feels that way for us when we read the text, obviously, but it felt that way for David, too. I mean, David himself, did you hear in the text, he said, he was outraged, he was so angered. How could a rich man do this to a poor person? this poor person that loved this little lamb. Like David himself was so frustrated in the hearing of this parable, he could relate to it. He could relate to it too. David was a shepherd after all. In 1 Samuel, that's what you learn about. Before David was the king, David was the youngest of the little brothers, probably had some sort of wealth, but he also was a shepherd and he cared for the sheep. He took care of them while they're out in the hills and in the fields. And and when you're the littlest of the brothers of so many siblings, there's a way in which you can take on poverty that's not a monetary sense, but you have the least amount of power in that system. 
And probably the most meaningful relationships that David had were between him and those sheep that he cared for. So when he hears this parable, it's like all that movement and momentum of water hits a brick wall. And you can feel the tension in the story. Now, I like this metaphor of the whirlpool effect because I think that's how it can feel sometimes in our life today, too. I don't know if you feel that way sometimes. Obviously, Nathan is sent by God to stop David where he is, to redirect David's leadership and the future of the monarchy and the kings. Um, But that happens because they were in a certain kind of form of government that was a theocratic monarchy, right? Like, it had certain kinds of assumptions. But in our world today, we have different kinds of assumptions if you live in the United States of America. We live in a democratic republic. We don't have an official religion uh, in this country that we live in. And yet, it can feel like there's so many forces that are at work right now with acceleration and mass moving to move waters in certain kinds of ways that we're just on flotation devices. We're just floating along for the ride. And it can feel like that sometimes um, when we think about life. And so sometimes when it even comes to this question of who is God in the midst of shifting political realities, in our world today, it can feel like a really difficult question to ask to even question, to wonder about, to think about, because it can feel much like a whirlpool that we live in. And even sometimes when we might try to not be a brick wall like Nathan in our world, if we might be so inspired, but we might just want to kick back or push against the lazy river a little bit, you can start to feel those forces moving against you all the time. And so I think it's even just a difficult question, but I think that image to me is helpful in just thinking about the world in which we live, and wondering about who is God in the midst of our shifting political realities. Because our political realities are shifting all the time, much like they were in the biblical text as well, like with the monarchy. We have shifting political realities too. Okay, I know the question can be sort of hard to ask who is God in the midst of this, but let's look at the text. And maybe in looking at the text, we can sort of discover some thoughts, some answers, some wonderings together as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let's look at this parable a little bit more. Okay, in the parable, there are four main characters, right? There's the rich man. There is the wayfarer or the stranger who shows up. There is the poor person. And then there is the little lamb. Now, There's all sorts of different ways to interpret this parable, and there's lots of people that have tried to think differently about this text, and we can explore some of these options together really quick. Obviously, the one thing that's crystal clear is that the rich person in the parable is David, and we know that because it's in the text, so we don't have to wonder about that. David is the rich man. But who are these other characters, and how do they align with the narrative of what happens in 2 Samuel? Could it be that the wayfarer, who is that? Do we know who that is? Because it sort of seems like God is frustrated because maybe Uriah is the poor person and he loses Bathsheba, his wife, his loved one, goes to David and that's why God gets frustrated. Is that why this parable is so meaningful? Is that who these characters are and they align with the story? I read somebody who said that Bathsheba was the stranger or the wayfarer because she showed up randomly in front of David and she was the stranger and that Uriah was the poor person and Bathsheba was also the little lamb. It was interesting interpretation. 
When I think about this parable, there's something I've been trying to wrestle with as I'm trying to identify these characters. And you might identify them differently as you read this part of the biblical text. That's fine. That's part of our imagination as we read the scripture. But I've been thinking as I look at this text that perhaps David is the rich man and that perhaps the wayfarer is Bathsheba. She shows up on the rooftop. The little lamb I think might be Uriah the Hittite. And I think the poor person might actually be God. I think the poor person actually might be God. The reason why I think this is because all throughout the biblical text, one of the dominant metaphors that's used to speak about who God is is that God is a shepherd, right? In Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd. I guess I like to think about this text being about God's love and care for Uriah. And when Uriah is discarded by the rich and the powerful in the temple palaces of Jerusalem at that time, by David himself, that God is so angered by the loss of his beloved little lamb that he sends Nathan to stop the whirlpool effect and to say, look, David, you think you're the ultimate ruler here, but you're not. You are the penultimate authority on life in this place. I gave you all of these things and all of these gifts to be king, but I am the ultimate ruler. And the way in which I go about my ruling is not being over against, it's not exploitative the way that I told you other human kings might be. It is that I am a shepherd and I care for my sheep. I send them out into green pastures by still waters. I care for them and I love them and I hold them into my bosom, as he said. I treat them as if they were my own children. So when I look at this text, I like to think about the poor person being God. And that is exactly why he is so frustrated and he sends Nathan to say this parable to David, to stop David in his tracks, to stop the whirlpool, to say, I am the ultimate ruler and leader of these people that I have a covenant relationship with, and you are the penultimate leader. You are not the most important leader over all these people. I am. And therefore, you need to start to behave in that kind of a way. And so much so that David will have certain kinds of consequences for his kingship moving forward as a result of this. Now, this is a hard word for David, but I think there's a lot of grace and there's a lot of love in the midst of this story in 2 Samuel chapter 12 too, because we remember that in that shifting political reality, what gets reestablished in this confrontational moment is God's ruling and God's leadership and God being the shepherd of the people, the ultimate shepherd of the people, which is who God has been all along. That's who God was when they were in the desert and the people needed food, they needed water, they needed shelter. That's who God was when they had judges. In that shifting political reality, that's who God is now with their monarchy. And that's who God will be after this too. Because the monarchy will go away at some point, they will go into exile, and they will be thrown into a whole new shifting reality. But the Lord remains the shepherd of these people one who loves them, who cares for them, and is over and above them all, and is the ultimate ruler, the ultimate shepherd, even if there are penultimate shepherds in their midst. And I think there's a lot of good news. There's a lot of grace in that idea. And there's grace in that idea so much so that God sends Nathan to stop what's happening in our world. Now for us, 
the question of who is, who is God in the midst of our shifting political realities. I, hopefully, maybe you've heard a little bit in this parable that could be helpful for you, but I also think that you could just go look and read First and Second Samuel yourself to try to wonder what that looks like between you and God as you think about this question. I don't know if I'll be able to provide an answer for you that's specifically for you for that today, or to maybe even make some conclusions about who is God in the midst of our shifting political realities. God is shepherd, but I also just think that this is a part of why we read the biblical text in the first place, so that our imagination could be spurred in new kinds of ways. And in our world today, where we don't have an official religion of this country, we don't have an official God of this country, but we are people ourselves who are in covenant relationship with one we believe to be shepherd over and against us. And in that way, as the shepherd sends sheep out into the flock, into the wilderness, into the places that they go, perhaps as we read these texts, we also might feel a sense of call of being sent. Are there ways that we see the whirlpool effect in our life that we might be sent to kick back a bit so that we can stop the whirlpool effect in our life? And some of the ways in which people are being mistreated, some of the ways that, you know, you might see the other sheep being mistreated or exploited in this world. Like you and God and the community that you are with and Bible studies you're a part of, your imagination will begin to be on fire as you read these kinds of stories from First and Second Samuel and how you might interact with our world today around these ideas. Friends, the Lord is our shepherd. The Lord was the shepherd of Uriah the Hittite. And this reminder for David shifted his reality. Remember that he was the penultimate ruler of that community, and it was God who was the ruler. God was the true shepherd of that people and that place, and God is the true shepherd of us in this place, here and now, even with wherever we are in the midst of our whirlpool and us floating along with all the mass and acceleration of that kind of reality. The Lord is our shepherd. Join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. God, we read the biblical text. We look at these stories so that you might inspire us so that we could have a sense about who we are and how we're called to be in this world and how we might participate in this world as those who are penultimate uh, leaders, penultimate people who are sent out into the world as your sheep. So God, give us a sense of that. Give us a vision of that. And we thank you for all the grace that we know about who you are as shepherd, that you care for your sheep and your sheep are plentiful. There are so many. And so help us have empathy for all the sheep in this world that you love and you care for, like Uriah, like Bathsheba, and that we also may be able to be those people that care for them as well as a result of who you are and your leadership and your ruling in this world today. We give you thanks for this text and these stories from First and Second Samuel. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.